The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning. No one warned me about this when I first became a pastor, but one thing that I quickly discovered, one of the greatest challenges to being a pastor in a church, especially a growing church, is when you meet a couple of hundred people over the years, it can become increasingly difficult to remember everyone's names. Does anyone identify with that at all? Some of you are really good at remembering names. Some of you struggle. You hear it and it goes in one ear and immediately out the other. Uh, I actually think I'm pretty decent at remembering names, but I've been helped uh, by someone who gave me this, this advice Someone that is uh, close to me, but I won't say their name for the sake of their reputation, but uh, someone recommended this book to me on memory and gave this glowing endorsement of a book on memory. It was, this book will change everything. It'll give you uh, clues and tricks and all kinds of things to help you remember. And it sounded really great. And then I asked this individual who will remain nameless, so what's the name of the book? couldn't remember. (laughs) Memory stuff. But it's such a gift. It's a precious, uh, incredible gift from the Lord. I think it's something that we often take for granted until it begins to slip away. My grandmother passed away when I was out of town at at our young adult beach retreat back in 2017. Excuse me. I was there with, with a lot of our young adults, and some of my brothers were there. My cousin was there from Switzerland, and so we got the news together that our grandmother passed away. And it was, uh, it was sweet to be together in that moment, to be able to mourn together. But in her last years, uh, if any of you knew Betty, she was a, an incredibly godly woman, uh, but she suffered increasingly from, from dementia, from Alzheimer's. Uh, and, and I have full confidence that now in glory, her, her memory is restored that her body is restored, that she is whole in the near presence of the Lord. But while she was still here, it was heartbreaking to watch as her memory slipped away. Now, now sometimes it's a kind thing when our memory begins to fade, at least certain memories, right? But for those precious memories, it's a gift to cling on to that which is good. And and I think when we look back on the best things in our life, we, we have this sense sometimes of a blissful longing for a time and a place, for, for, for people, for these, these things that we've experienced in life that were so good and we look back with longing. Have you ever noticed that even when you go back though to some of those places you long for, it's not quite the same, right? But why is that? It's because deep down we're longing for something different, something more. There's almost like a present nostalgia, a blissful longing really for heaven and for the full restoration of all things. But what I saw in my grandmother and what I saw in my grandfather as well in their last days was was not what had left their minds, but what had endured. And what had endured was certainly love for each other. And what had endured was this clinging grasp to scripture and to God glorifying song. Some of you have seen this. In my grandmother's last hours, though she was rarely lucid, she she would wake suddenly and she would sing out clear lyrics of God's faithfulness where she'd burst forth from sleep. This was in her last hour. She'd burst out of sleep and started singing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. I've seen this more than once. But it's a precious thing when when we see, even in the tragedy of memory fading, the way that our minds cling on tightly to that which is eternal. It's like a a backwards echo, if that makes sense. Our vital memories here point us to a reality beyond the grave. It's such 
an important gift, memory. But it's one that we rarely remember to thank God for. When we're, when we're having these times of Thanksgiving and saying, God, thank you for this, we never say, God, thank you that my memory is still good, do we? But maybe we should. Maybe we should. I've often, how, I have often wondered how quickly we forget God's faithfulness. And if you don't want to look at yourself, look at Israel. Look at the people of Israel as they're led out of captivity in this great exodus. They're led to freedom from slavery and captivity. And, and God has delivered them through a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's worked signs and wonders and he set them free. And as they go out to the wilderness and they're confronted with the Red Sea in front of them, what do they do? They begin to complain. They begin to forget. And maybe it's partially forgetfulness, partially rebellion. I think that's in, in all of us. But it's, it's easy to read about Israel in this setting and be like, what's wrong with them? How quickly they've forgotten the power and the goodness of God. And yet, don't we find ourselves doing the same? Don't we find ourselves being like Israel in the wilderness. And God's word over and over, it calls us to remember to think about his blessings, to think about his provision, to think about his faithfulness and to consider how good he has been to us. We've been in the gospel of Mark now for a while, I think is fair to say, and we will be for August and some of September as we finish out this gospel. But in this gospel, we have this opportunity to see Jesus in his last days. This is what we get to look at for the next six weeks or so, the very last hours of Jesus's life and then the resurrection that comes a few days later. We get to look at this in, in depth and consider what was important to Jesus. What messages was he committed to, to getting out there to his disciples in those final hours? What was most important to him and what was on his mind? And what did he do? And so as we open Mark chapter 14 today, we're going to see the final meal of Jesus as he's with his disciples and he gives them in this meal, this gift, an ordinance, a, a, a sacrament, a practice that his disciples can revisit again and again, a practice that has become a cornerstone of, of worship in the church across denominations, across the centuries, a practice of the church for thousands of years. And through this sacrament, it has a lot of names, the, the, the Eucharist, the table, the Lord's Supper, communion, all these different names. But through it today, as we look at this passage and as Jesus gives this blessing to his followers, we're going to see in it an image of their redemption, an invitation to relationship, and lastly, an inspiration to remember, to remember him. I'm gonna read the passage to you. I'm going to jump over a couple of verses that Tyler covered last year concerning the betrayal of, last week, excuse me, the betrayal of Judas. But it says this in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, this is a big holy holiday for the Hebrew people. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Now, there's a lot of mystery in this. How did Jesus know all this was going to take place? Well, every indication is that he has somehow prepared in advance for this evening with his disciples. He set everything in motion, and so, so it's a, a smooth process despite all the threats against him in the city, despite all the pressures that were on Jesus, where they go in and they find that everything is just as he has said, prepared, ready. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So the disciples set the table, they begin cooking, they get the dishes, they get everything ready and they're waiting until the sun goes down on that day in order to 
have this meal together. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, he says in this moment, truly one of you will betray me. Then jumping down to verse 22, it says, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I just want you to place yourself in that room to the best of your ability. The sun has gone down, it's candle lit and lamp lit. The disciples are gathered around the table and they are having their, their last meal with Jesus. Some of them, uh, I think, have begun to grasp that. Others have not. And yet you can sense in, in just the, the tone of Jesus and his seriousness, when he does this act, when he starts breaking bread and talking about it being his body and pours wine and talk, talks about it being his blood, there's, there's mystery here and there's a weight to it. There's a, a reverence to what's going on here. And, and certainly this would have been a, a very significant event for these disciples. It's no accident that Jesus gives us this supper. He gives us this demonstration in, in the context of the Passover. See, in establishing the Passover itself, we, we can read about this back in the book of Exodus. All these activities would have been practiced, this breaking of bread and, and, and bitter herbs and cups of wine and, and all these different symbols would have been used, not just once, but this would have been something that disciples celebrate year after year after year, and it would have been written into the consciousness of God's people from that day on. And so in this context, just hours before the betrayal, we see this last quiet meal taking place. Jesus and his disciples, they'd celebrate a night in which, remember what God had done. He set them free from slavery in Egypt. He led them out of bondage. And, and, and so what the Jewish people had done on that night was they took a lamb and they sacrificed that lamb. They took the blood of the lamb and they put it over the doorposts of their room so that the angel of death would pass over their homes as he brought judgment upon Egypt. And in the preparation for escape, the people of Israel would have had no time to eat. They would have had their sandals and belts on. They would have eaten this unleavened bread and, and, this, and gotten out as fast as they could when the time was right. And so here in this act, they remember the mighty hand of God, the outstretched arm of God to lead the Hebrew people from slavery to freedom. And so in this meal, if you've never participated in something like this, there's, there's scripture readings, there's a song, there's a meal of lamb and unleavened bread, there's cups of wine, all stimulating the senses to reinforce this story of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. And so what does all this represent? Now, now the Passover meal and its formality, we don't actually have uh, a lot of it in writing, but the way it's been practiced for about the, uh, the last thousand years gives us some indication. But what it all represents, especially the wine that's given, it comes from Exodus chapter six, verse six. The four things that God accomplishes for the people of Israel through the Passover. He says this in verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And number four, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 
I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. But Jesus, as he's going through this meal with the disciples, he's about to say something astounding. All of this, this salvation, this deliverance, this redemption, this taking, this adoption as his people, all of it will happen through his broken body and his shed blood. He will be the Passover lamb the final Passover lamb to make a way of deliverance and salvation and adoption for those who believe through his death. Recall with me the meeting of of Jesus on the mountainside with Moses and Elijah. We went over this back in December. and, And so hopefully you remember that as we're talking about memory today. But Jesus is up on this mountain, very tall mountain with his closest disciples. And they're falling asleep and Jesus is off praying when something dramatic happens. They wake up to see Jesus shining shining not in reflected glory, but the glory of God emanating from Jesus, fully man and fully God, fully divine. And suddenly they're in this this environment of of bright light and there are two people meeting with Jesus on the mountain, talking to Jesus. Do you remember who they are? It's Elijah and who else? Moses, right. Elijah and Moses, so mysterious. But here it says that in this passage in Luke 9.30, it says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. So he's looking forward to going to Jerusalem to the cross. And here he is on this mountainside, and the word departure here in this passage should stand out to us because it actually means in Greek, it's from the word exodus, exodus. And here Jesus is speaking with Moses the leader of God's people, out of slavery. And here they speak of the true exodus, what Jesus will accomplish through the cross, the breaking of sin and a path to salvation for all people that will believe through the cross. What a conversation that must have been. And now here, Jesus is gathered with an upper room with his closest disciples. And in this last supper that he shares with them, he gives the disciples and all his future followers these wonderful, uh, these wonderful elements to grasp onto for us to reflect on and remember. See, the disciples, they know about Passover. This, is, this has always been significant in their lives. This is now the third time in the ministry of Jesus that they've celebrated this Passover together. And, and they would have been very familiar with all of this. But now on this final occasion, as Jesus has been so eager to spend this time with them, they haven't quite been connecting the dots. See, throughout Jesus' ministry, his disciples and Jesus had been in danger. They'd been threatened. They had been uh, almost killed on a few occasions. But Jesus encourages his disciples. He says all, all the time to them, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's essentially saying, fear not, because my end is not yet. But now his time has come. His time has come and they begin to understand it. He he knows that in mere hours, he's going to experience betrayal and, and mockery and torture and death. But his disciples, they still seem to understand that only dimly, only after the fact does all of this make sense to them. Because when he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you, that would have been incredibly confusing to them until they see the cross and they see what he did and what he knew was coming. Not only would this Passover meal be a celebration of Israel's liberation from Egypt, but even more so, it is a picture of Jesus's sacrificial death to liberate sinners, a proclamation to the world of what Christ has done. 1 Corinthians 11, 6, it says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you what? Proclaim. 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is an image of the true exodus. But it's even more than that. It's also, number two, an invitation to relationship. An invitation to relationship. We having the context, we can look back and we understand this. When we see the cross, we're like, that makes sense. These, these things that seem to symbolize the, the crucifixion of Jesus, this makes sense to us. But no doubt it must have been startling and confusing to Jesus when he says, this is my body, eat my body, drink my blood. When he suddenly picks up the bread and wine and starts telling them that these are representative of his body and blood being shed. But he actually doesn't even say these are symbols, does he? He says, this is, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, this is a, a, a mystery of our faith. It's led to divisions and denominations um, around this, the how of communion, of the Lord's Supper. In what sense is Jesus actually present in this act? Spiritually, literally, how is he present in the elements? And there's been all kinds of uh, debates about this, how Christ is present in this meal. Does the wine and the bread actually physically alter to become the body and blood physically of Jesus? Is it just a spiritual alteration? Is this just a memorial, just something to remember him by? But I think where we get into trouble is, is seeking to understand the how of what is intentionally and profoundly mysterious rather than embracing the fact that he is here. He is. He is present here in this place. And the truth is that when we drink and eat together as brothers and sisters in Christ, he is present too, which means that the risen Lord Jesus himself truly meets us when we come to his table. Certainly it's a memorial symbol, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit with the church, we, as we imitate Christ and remember him in this meal, there's no doubt that we are called to discern the body and blood of our Lord, to, to hold in our minds the reality of his sacrifice for us and to discern his presence with us. See, communion is not just a word for a meal. Communion is, is, is a word that indicates relationship, close relationship where feelings and thoughts are exchanged in which there's depth, where we're known, where there's connection and meaning. This is what it is to have communion with another. I, I wonder how many of you have ever felt like your, your connection with God is just not that close. Maybe it's suffering because of sin or, or stress or sorrow. And, and while our communion with the Lord can become distant, he is not. He is not. This is our steadfast hope through the cross. Our communion with him is never broken. For those that believe in him, we can always draw near to him anew. And this is what the table of the Lord invites us to do, to draw near to him. God gave his people feasts and festivals throughout their history to remember his faithfulness and his works of redemption. And he has given us the church, baptism and communion as a constant reminder, not just of our atonement, but also our adoption as sons and daughters. When I was a kid, I really wanted to take communion. Like I really wanted it. I think mostly because I saw a bunch of people around me getting uh, pieces of bread and grape juice at church. And that seemed really appealing. But, but frankly, I didn't understand it. I didn't grasp what it meant. Sometimes I still don't grasp the mystery of this, this meal that we take. And so my parents were, were disciplined enough to, to know that this is a, a meal for, for those, it is reserved for those that by faith have believed in Christ who have discerned the broken body and shed blood of their Lord on the cross. And so, so I didn't take communion until I was baptized sometime later in my life. This is a table for those that have a relationship 
with the Lord Jesus? Have you discerned the reality of, of his substitution for you on that cross? That he's paid the penalty for your sins. Have you discerned the necessity of what he's done for you? This is the, the miracle of our faith is that as we believe in him, we receive his indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to understand this on some level. Some of you have experienced this where you're, you're maybe not walking that intimately with the Lord, you're struggling. And yet as you take communion with the church, you, you sense the barriers falling down. When you go through that process of contemplation and, and, and confession and prepare your heart for this, you see anew his open arms towards you. You see the invitation of him to draw near to you, that there's not condemnation there. There is condemnation that he's already taken upon himself. This is the beautiful thing about our faith. The ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. It's not a special meal for special people, but it is a meal for those that know they are Christ's, that belong to him. And those that are willing to bring their burdens and, and, and lay them at the feet of the cross, forsaking our own self-righteousness. To believe means to acknowledge that, that no amount of our effort can make us truly right with God, that to be his child cannot be attained by being a really good person, but rather that righteousness can only be found in the atoning death of Jesus Christ and has already been freely given. Believer, this is for you. This is for you. For those that believe that they, they, uh, though they're sinful and broken and guilty and burdened, that in coming to Jesus, he puts our sin as far as the East is from the West. This is for you. All our sins, not some of them, all our sins, past, present, and future have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. So that when Jesus lifts this bread symbolizing his body and this wine representing his blood, this is a reminder to Christians of the free gift of salvation that we have accepted from him and the relationship that that sacrifice makes possible. I think a lot of us grasp grace, right? We grasp that there's nothing we really bring to the table in terms of righteousness. How many of you really know that? Like we know we need the cross. We know we need grace, but here's the mistake we, we make sometimes as believers. We recognize that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. There's nothing that we're bringing to the table in terms of our own righteousness. But then we come to him in faith. We believe in him. We receive what he's done for us and we forget what that means, how that changes our status. You are no longer what you were. You are no longer a rebel against God. You are no longer dead in your sin and trespasses. You are not trash. You are not garbage to God. No, he loved you so much that he sent his son. And when you believe in him, you are adopted as sons and daughters. You are beloved to him. You are washed by the blood of the lamb. You are his friend. He spent himself willingly because he loves you. The third thing we see in communion is that it is an inspiration to remember, to remember. In Luke chapter 22 and in 1 Corinthians 11, there's this important phrase that we find in here in Paul's words, we'll read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse three. He says, for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul somehow, even though he wasn't one of the disciples here on this night, God has revealed a lot to him, the gospel to him, and, and, and he's met Jesus, actually met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and, and God has instructed him all, in all these things. And he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's so easy in life when we're stressed or we're struggling or, or we're fighting, we're, we're going through difficult things. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? For, for the current stresses and strains and problems to, to rise to the top of our minds constantly and to forget what he's done, to forget what he's promised, to forget that he is with us. Not only does he call us to remember, but he actually gives us this aid to remember him. This aid in our remembrance. And he does this throughout the scriptures. Remember first Samuel chapter seven. Maybe you don't off the top of your head. But God has given Israel victory over the Philistines. And so Samuel, what he does is he sets up this, this great stone, a great stone of remembrance. It says Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And what did he name it? Come on, some Bible nerd out there, tell me. What did he name it? Ebenezer. It's a great name. A stone of remembrance a stone of help. He named it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us so that every time people looked upon that great stone, they would remember the victory that was given to them in the Lord. They would remember him. I wonder what great things God has done in your life. What stones of remembrance do you have in your life? What are the stones of remembrance that you can look to to, to remember his constant help? That he's been faithful even when we have not been. That he's given us this, this gift of salvation and relationship with him. What are the stones of remembrance that remind you of his faithfulness and his goodness? What are those? Another means of reminder he's given us is his spirit. By the help of the Holy Spirit, he calls to mind scriptures. He calls to mind truth. He, he combats through the sword of the spirit, the lies and deceptions of our enemy. And he tells his disciples this in John 14, 26. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He gives us his holy word, which on every page of this word, word, it points to his redemptive work. It points to the goodness of God and what he has done. He gives us psalms and, and lamentations that express what we often feel, overwhelmed and stressed out and burdened and, and all these different things, surrounded by enemies and yet anchored to hope. I want you to notice that in the Psalms of Lament, so often David, the psalmist, or whichever psalmist writes those particular psalms, they're crying out in lament, telling God honestly how they feel, which by the way, you can do. But in every case, even if it's just briefly, they are anchored in remembrance to hope, to the goodness of God, to his provision, even in, in the midst of lamentation. We call to mind his goodness. Lamentation 3, 21, 22, Jeremiah, he says, but this I call to mind. He's, he's going through night, a nightmare in, in Judah. He says, but this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. He's bringing back the goodness of God to his mind. He says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And here for the church, he's given us this meal this reminder of his covenant faithfulness, this meal that reminds us of our salvation that was bought with a heavy price to the breaking of Jesus's body and the shedding of his blood on the cross for us. But this remembrance is not just a moment for, for solemn reflection. This is a celebration. This is a, an invitation to joyful remembrance of the great love we've been shown, the delight that God had in us. 
the, the care and faithfulness that he had toward us. This is a celebration of our freedom, our salvation, our redemption, and our adoption. Christ has conquered sin and death. And in this context, Jesus says something incredible. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do you think the disciples would forget Jesus? I don't think so. So what's he referring to? Do this in remembrance of me. He's referring to the significance of his death. In other words, he's not saying do this so that you don't forget about me. He's saying do this so you'll remember who I am and you'll remember what I've done. Do this in remembrance of that. But the, but the truth is, as I reflected on this passage, and maybe you all can identify with this, I realize that truthfully, I forget Jesus all the time. In my day-to-day comings and goings, he is, he's not at the forefront of my mind. My identity in him is not first and foremost, nor is what he has done. He's not who I lean on often to guide my thoughts and my, my actions. I'm confessing that to you. And maybe you can identify with that. Sometimes, maybe often, we forget Jesus in our life, even here in church, in a context in, we, in which we ought to be worshiping him. Don't our minds wander? Don't we lose focus? In the midst of that, Jesus says through this meal, remember me, remember me. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great uh, English preachers in a sermon on this passage, it, he says something really honest about why he often has difficulty remembering the Lord. And this is what Spurgeon says. He says, I know what it is to forget Christ. Let me tell you how that happens. It happens by two means. The first means is this. He says, my heart is a mess. He says, can I be honest with you? My heart is a mess. And he says it actually much more eloquently than that. He says, his heart is a cage of unclean birds, a den of loathsome creatures where dragons haunt and owls do congregate. (laughs) It's pretty good. I don't know that I would have that creative description of my own heart that way, but I know what he's talking about. Honestly, I can identify with that. My heart is often in turmoil. It's, it's distracted. It's selfish. There's a lot going on there. A lot going on there to, to distract us from the Lord, to cause us to focus on ourselves rather than on our Lord. And here's Spurgeon in front of his congregation, the prince of preachers. He says, maybe none of you forget about Jesus. Maybe you don't get this way, but in the midst of my life, I often forget him because my heart and my soul is wild. A cage of unclean birds full of turmoil, anger, and grime. And I constantly need to bring myself back into submission to Christ. And the table invites us, wild birds and all, to do just that. The second thing that Spurgeon says is he says, I can forget him because far too many things attract me and occupy me. Who identifies with that? He uses this analogy of the sun and the moon. The the sun is so much greater, so much grander than the moon. In fact, the moon has no light of its own. It simply reflects the light of the sun. The sun is far greater than the moon. And yet the moon, because of its proximity to the earth, because it's so close, it has has this dramatic effect on the tides of our planet. Spurgeon goes on to say that, that the reason the moon is as influential as it is is because of its proximity to the earth. So I find that a a little crawling worm upon the earth has more effect on my soul than the glorious Christ of heaven. A puff of fame, a shout of applause, a, a thriving business, my house, my home will affect me more than all the glories of heaven simply because earth is near and heaven is far away. I identify with that. I'm sure many of you do. And the Lord's Supper, this memorial meal that we share together, it draws us away from all that distracts us. 
to turn our eyes, our hearts, our minds with attention to what actually matters. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this so that week after week as we gather together, you, you will draw away from all that distracts you and makes you forgetful and remember who you are in light of the cross and resurrection and remember what I've done to set you free from sin and death. So as we come to communion this morning, we're going to take communion. If you didn't get a, an opportunity to pick up elements, they are at the back. But my question for you this morning is, as you take of this meal, how will you remember him? How will you remember Jesus? You can remember Jesus in, in so many different ways. Remember him in his baptism. As the creator of water itself goes under his own creation to identify with us in death. And then he rises up out of the water and his father thunders over him. This is my beloved son. You could remember Christ in his temptation as he's out in the wilderness being subjected to temptations from Satan himself and yet faithful. We don't have a high priest who is unable to identify with us in our weakness. We have a high priest in Christ who has, has been tempted in every way as we are and yet was sinless. He knows what you're going through. He knows the struggles you're dealing with. He knows the, the temptations that seem too much for you. He's not distant. Will you remember him in that, that he's close? Will you remember him in his miraculous ministry as who did he draw near to? Outcasts and sinners, the ones that no one else would even touch or look at. You think you're unworthy? <laughs> we all are. And yet we are loved deeply. This is the ministry of our Lord. Remember him in that. Maybe we remember him in his, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which is, wasn't actually a triumph. It was a, a, a entry into his betrayal and death. And yet he set his face. Remember the courage of our Lord who went to a cross willingly because he loves you. Maybe you'll think about the cross itself or the garden as, as he cried out, be, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. And yet considering us, considering what it would cost. He said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, will you remember him on the cross and all he experienced, the agony that he went through as he suffered and died and cried out, not in anger, not in protest, but Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Will you remember him as he became nothing so that we could be restored to relationship with a father that we rebelled against? Will you remember him as he stepped out of a tomb and he called one of his closest friends by name, Mary, Mary. Jesus is alive. Will you remember him in his resurrection and in, in his ascension that right now he is reigning in power. He is seated at the right hand of the father. And what is he doing? He is interceding for you, his beloved. He is praying for you. Will you remember him in his return? He's coming back. He's coming back and he will restore all things. He will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from your eye and he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth where, where we will reign with him forever. Wherever you choose to set your mind as we take communion this morning, let us remember Christ. Not just that he's done something, but that he is here with us right now. I invite you right now to, to prepare your hearts. First Corinthians 11, it, it tells us to do this, to, to prepare our hearts 
for communion. And so what I wanna ask you to do is simply spend a couple of minutes in quiet contemplation and reflection, perhaps confession, to bring a prepared heart as we take communion together. Let's go to the Lord in, in silent confession right now.